A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That point would be the end of the fourth book in the Red Rising series. Iron Gold by Pierce Brown. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. Crossland, we're fucking yes. done. We're done with this book. We finished another one. Holy shit, goddamn. Now I still have to wait until I start the next book. But I'm excited in the moment. You know, this is probably the most books you've read in a year and a long time, and we've finished, what, three books? This is the most books I've, other than books assigned to me for school, this is the most books I've ever finished in a year. <laughs> Which is, you know, it's it's a great thing. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that was yeah. the point. That's the entire fucking point of this thing. I'm I'm really happy about it. It's interesting. I'm glad. I'm excited that we're here. I'm glad that, you know, we've gotten you on this train. I'm very excited for kind of the next the next looks of things that we're going to talk about and start doing. Um, it's, it's it's all very exciting. And of course, I'm very excited to talk about the end of fucking Iron Gold. Today is our 10th <laughs> and final episode covering that glorious book, Iron Gold by Pierce Brown. And we're going to tackle chapters 58 through that end. But before we do that, let's talk about what we're drinking. I got, I've got rye in a, in a cup. Just, just, <laughs> just rye. <laughs> yeah. I've got, I've got a little, a little pour of Woodford Reserve straight rye that I'm really enjoying. So I decided to just have, have some rye meat for the show. Wow. That's, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a choice. Woodford Reserve is good. I'm, I'm not, I'm not digging on you. It's yeah. just, whoop. <laughs> <laughs> fair and then uh, what are following that up i've got straight fire from uh blackstack which Ooh. is it's a double ipa but i love the can art i also hate the can art i love how much i hate the can art basically um and i think it was done on purpose it was um a brew in conjunction with a um, burger place that they're friends with um hmm. and it's just <laughs> It's just a shitty picture of, like, a top-down picture of a burger in a takeout box. <laughs> I just looked it up. This is the funniest shit I've ever seen on a beer can. Oh, my God. And uh, the, bo- the bottom of the can. Uh, so there's always a description of the beer on all their cans. Mm-hmm. Um so they describe how, like, what's going on, blah, 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 blah. Then we hired a bunch of Instagram models and influencers to accurately illustrate how lit the experience is certain to be. Trust us, it's fire. <laughs> that's the picture they put on the can. It's, it's fucking hilarious. That's honestly amazing. I, <laughs> that hurts me a little bit with how funny that is. Highly recommend you look it up just so you can, you can know what it is. Fire is spelled F-Y-R-E because um, it's obviously it's the Firefest photo. Is that or what it is? It looks is? close to it. It looks close to it. It's got like the loose cheese on it, right? Like, uh, I can't tell. Or does it look like a burger? It, it seems it, to I be evoking a, that Firefest imagery, though. Yeah, that could be. It's it's just a top down picture of of some sort of sandwich. 
on a burger bun. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going to read too far into it. I think it's funny. But yeah. <laughs> what have you got? I am having uh, literally what I had last week, the smoked honey sour. I was going to make the the blueberry sour that we had on our Patreon thing for the Bo Burnham inside special that we did this week. But I didn't have enough time because I was running a little bit behind and the whole egg white combo shake thing would have taken a little bit longer. So I decided to go with the easy one. Mostly I already have the stuff. So another smoked honey sour. Yeah, really solid. And I'm following that up with also the same thing that I drank last week. (laughs) So exciting. The high pitch mosaic IPA, um, which is just great. But I have not had a whole lot of time Mm -hmm. um, with uh, with everything that's going on and everything we're planning and trying to do. So I really I need to get to the liquor store to pick up some beers that aren't IPAs or stouts like that's all i have in my fridge right now and i don't want to open any of the stouts because they're like large format bottles oh no that'd be that'd be a tough follow-up to a cocktail on the show true although you could just do one of those i could just do one of those that might be that might be what i do next week we'll Hmm. see We'll see. Well, there we go. There we go. So last week's predictions, we've got a couple here to talk about. Um, We're actually going to talk about all of them, even though a couple aren't fully answered here. I'm actually, for the first time ever, going to carry your predictions over to the next book as well. The one or the two that aren't answered here. So Mm. we're going to carry these forward as well. So it'll it'll be interesting and different. So with that, your first prediction was, does Apple live through the upcoming task? You said? Unfortunately, yes. Equipped with something, army, ships. Was that you? Did you write that? Nope. No, you did. Or maybe okay. I did. I might have typed it up for you because you were talking oh, and answering the yeah. question. Okay. Yeah. But unfortunately, yes, and that came true. And he does have a ship. He doesn't have an army, though. No, right. That's kind of one of the things that Darrow deprives him of. Mm-hmm. Out of their agreement, basically. So he I drink. almost almost didn't live. <laughs> almost didn't, yeah. If he Very and Severo true. would have gotten into an actual like fist fight, I don't think Apollonius would have survived. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I think Darrow probably would have just skewered him. Okay, so with that, in Darrow's attack on the Ashlord's base, who actually survives? You said Darrow, Apollonius, Thraxa. So the, more they than all that did. survives. But they did survive. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you said they were the only ones. Who yeah, survived. no. So it's just me that drinks for this one. I yeah, think. like that. Yeah, was... I think so. I put both, but I was like, no, no, no this is me. So, oh, what do you know? Darrow survived. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> All right, life's not guaranteed. No, I, I was, I was actually like kind of flip flopping back and forth between whether or not I thought he'd survive the book. Uh, does Lysander get out with his life? Uh, yes, but not as an innocent bystander. He will need to fight. And he doesn't have to fight his way out, but he does commit to raising an army and fighting. Yeah, so this is one where I agreed basically to take the drink here because I think it makes the most sense. And We can do a both drink. Because I, I think my the spirit of my answer was that he would need to fight his way out. So the next question of which is going to be rolled forward is who is the syndicate queen? We don't get an answer to that, although we do see a looming face. You said Dido. We don't know that yet. So that's a lingering question. That that face does it. I I got the impression that that face wasn't necessarily the actual like look of the person that is the queen, much like the Ares helm. Yes. Yeah. I was thinking kind of like a visage, like it's not really 
I you could also imagine it or picture it just like the emperor in the early Star Wars movies. Yeah. You know, the the sort of cloaked figure where you can't really make it out but you you know that it's someone important but you're not sure who or what. Right. And then the final question here is what happens to Lyria and you said we see an epilogue for her, not a POV in the next book. So because we haven't started the next book yet, we can't really call that one out right but technically we don't get to know this until the end of the next book until we start the last chapter of the next book <laughs> wait what what hmm? oh what <laughs> why well oh you're saying this could technically go completely unanswered <laughs> and we won't know until the end of dark age technically that's interesting <laughs> <laughs> this question would just roll roll forward forever <laughs> oh man that's that's a kind of a nightmare and i'm afraid now so <laughs> with that let's get into I, the chapters I, I, I hope i'm right i hope she's not a pov in the next book and i have to constantly bring up whether or not she's going to be a point of view in the next section of the book for the entire book <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't that be something end of the book surprise lyria chapter <laughs> yeah i can't you can't answer that <laughs> which is what i i was gonna i was like i uh hmm, nope okay cool so with that <laughs> we're gonna get into the chapters uh we've got chapter 58 ephraim half-breed and hatchet face so it, i mean it, it should go without saying that this section is actually the smallest section in this entire book that we're reading today a little bit over 40 pages so it's not it's not a whole lot in the way of physical reading and some of these chapters are real short because we go to all four povs and kind of get a sense of where they're going to be or setting them up for the next next installment in this ongoing story so with that there there are obviously things that we're going to talk about and things that we'll have to break down but it's also worth noting that it's not it's mostly set up you know mm-hmm. right with a couple of couple of components of big payoff but so with uh with ephraim here remember how you described electra's feral at the beginning of this book mm-hmm. i know i know your response is gonna be crossland i don't remember what i said last week let alone eight weeks ago or <laughs> no, whatever I re- but <laughs> i think of her as like or did you ever watch dave the barbarian yes chimp uh or what's That's... her name what's her name Ah, uh, fuck um what what is what is like the feral like caveman looking girl she's described as a chimp all the fang? time isn't it fang 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 yes yep. i think of her as fang that's perfect <laughs> that feels that actually feels very right and <laughs> that's kind of scary mm? i mean it, that, that is when it, when i think of her like when i try to imagine her i imagine fang <laughs> as a cartoon <laughs> <laughs> I don't think of any other characters as cartoons, but she's a cartoon in my eyes. <laughs> Except for Electra. Yeah. What do you what do you make of how the kids interact now that we kind of get to get to see them be people a little bit more? Um they're obviously or do you mean interacting with Ephraim or do you mean interacting in general, like with the world? Uh, in in general and with Ephraim. I mean I think that both play here so i mean with ephraim they're clearly wary but they're competent and they understand how to fight and they have a confidence about them just in general they're they're confident and competent but pax is and ephraim points this out pax is the more cautious but i think electra is the better fighter that we we, we've seen a couple times 
throughout the book that she's she's the better fighter so she's a little bit more willing to be the the leader and i think she's a little protective of of pax she's older isn't she by like a year um i don't know if that's actually revealed at all no i don't think she is older i think she's younger really by a year because because uh pax was born before yes like darrow didn't know about pax so i think pax Pax is is a year older and she's younger okay anyway that makes it that that flips it on 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 its head for me and i don't know she's She's just kind of more headstrong, I guess, a little bit more stubborn and wanting to prove herself. So she takes the lead. I think they they both understand how dangerous Ephraim can be because of how they got kidnapped and just the depth of what they got themselves into through Ephraim. But the fact that he's holding the Duke hostage gives them some some ease in knowing that he he's there to help them. Yeah. Right. I, I don't think they'll necessarily fully trust him at any point, and that's clear through their actions and putting him at blade point for most of the story going forward. But at least they know that his intention is to bring them back to their parents, bring them back home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that they they understand the proper intentions, and it kind of creates an interesting tension between the kids and Ephraim because... They obviously know him from abducting them and that whole thing. So they're like, ultimately, hey, the situation is very weird. Hey, you remember when you tried to kill everybody that I love and then steal me and give me to a uh, crime syndicate? Yeah. Hi. <laughs> yeah. So why are you rescuing me from the crime syndicate? Now I'm real confused as to your intentions. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, the the whole situation with the kids i think is actually really funny and it left lets ephraim actually be a source of humor inside of this little chapter where there's just a lot of like different different like little jokes that get to go off and he plays off of the two of them and they play off of him fairly well it's pretty funny right yeah it's great the the fact that ephraim after freeing the children though of course pilfers the room and like runs around (laughs) is just kind of like having fun he's like oh i gotta stuff all this shit in my bag but him he's like persist- upset with how little he can actually take compared to what's yeah. in there. Right, right. He's very upset about the the limited amount that he can take out of this room because there's so much cool shit in here. And, you know, obviously the kids are grabbing like les- legendary razors and that's what they're carrying around. And I, it's it's just a very interesting scene. It feels very like Indiana Jonesy to me in a way. <laughs> you referring know. to it as legendary razors like makes me get like diablo nostalgia <laughs> like i just want to see a, a brown pillar coming up off of it <laughs> insert sound effect here yeah no i i know exactly what you're talking about the yeah. the gold the legendary drop sound yeah it's it's very very similar not only that but like you know you wonder if maybe one of them grabbed like selenius's razor mm-hmm. that was stolen plus, from the beginning of the book plus 25 crit hit chance like that. <laughs> yeah, of course legendary <laughs> effect where it summons a demon every third swing <laughs> but then he finds the persistence of memory la persistencia de memoria yeah i was gonna I, if you weren't gonna say that in is that french or italian spanish it's spanish okay yeah he's spanish salvador Dali. I, yep that makes sense yep. that makes that makes total sense i was going to make you say that if if you hadn't said it but you did so never mind carry on 
Oh yeah, no, no <laughs> worries. I, you're gonna force me to try to say it weird. It is actually funny because Dolly did live in um, France for a long time, so that's it is it is interesting mm-hmm. that like you called out France first because it's definitely well, it's the mustache. That's you know, it's fair. It's the weird mustache. It's a it's a telling French move. So. Mm-hmm. It is it is funny that he just kind of grabs it though and then he's like this is I I can I have the persistence of memory like I, it's just mine and he steals it. You got to hope that like he makes it out of there with it. Yeah. I mean it, <laughs> like, it's clearly an important painting to him. He obviously they he mentions he investigated that claim, but early in the book he has a copy of it in in his apartment and it's a cool painting. And he really values art. He talks about art in the early part of this book all the time. Yeah, he and does. you know there's there's clearly something there and you know, it's not that far of a stretch to say that he kind of is an embodiment of the persistence of memory of the sort of droopy clocks of life and the the diluted serotonin from the Zolodone and just everything else. Like just the the dude fits that bill fairly well. Yeah, he does. I, I love how uh, Hatchet Face, I mean, Electra, I mean, <laughs> Hatchet Face is just able to count all of the guns and people and re- like recounts the models to Ephraim. And we already mentioned the humor being great, but like those lines specifically, no dolls for you, huh? Like after she does that is just perfect. I mean, she's upfront about the fact that she missed a couple. Like, <laughs> it's true. It's not that impressive. <laughs> but no, like clearly she is well, well trained in this stuff. Like She knows what to do here. Which is, like, perfect as the child of Victra and Severo, right? Like, it just fits the bill. Yeah. Like, she's a tactician. She is is a commander through and through. She will be... You think? Yeah. No? What do you think? What? I feel like she's more aggressive than, like, a... She's more of a, like, foot sold... That's that's more what I mean. Like, she'll... Like, the leader of a platoon. Got it. Like, on on the ground. Okay. I thought you were thinking, yeah, like, I, bigger I, picture, not, like not, Roke, maybe. Not, yeah, no, not an Imperator. Like, I, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking more. I guess tactician gave it the wrong impression. I mean, like she, she is fast, fast. That makes sense to me. Yeah, it, they're just again, all the humor is great. All the funny shit is awesome. You know, poking the the um, Duke, making the Duke tell him to stop, and getting out through <laughs> all the dudes is great. All of them kind of listening and behaving. And then they make it all the way out. And <laughs> I'm just I'm thinking of his conversation with the Duke telling him to go look out there. He's like, fuck you. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny. He like, he's like, he's going to like push him out in front. It again. We I think we said this a little bit last week, but it reminds me of like a Coen Brothers film in a way. Like, yeah. <laughs> just it's sort of the, the way that, that humor plays back and forth. Mm-hmm. Like. It's it's very Fargo. It's very yeah. Uh, I was I was oh, gonna say art though. I was gonna say Fargo. Like where to get were back we to at? <laughs> we were at Gorgo, um, okay. which he's you know he's obviously we we made jokes and comments about the the irreverence of kind of the the commentary that is there between the Duke and the kids and Ephraim. We then he you know, he's constantly observing. He's like I still don't see Gorgo. I still don't know where Gorgo is. And finally, he catches the glint of Gorgo up in another room, sniping, shoots. Ephraim and almost kills our boy and potentially is still gonna kill him like he's not in a good way at the end of this but it basically ends with a close call and them getting on the ship and taking off there is the comment now I understand what it means now I understand the look in Gorgo's eyes when I called him 
uh, the Duke's man or something like that. He's he's saying they're fucking, right? I think so. And probably, like, they're together is more what I'm thinking. They don't really expand on that. And it, it wasn't a detailed enough description of what he was seeing to really know what he means. But I'm assuming that's what he meant. I would I would think so, but also that he consists like he he might also always be the one who's a, like a step ahead too in the same way that the duke is. Like he's a very smart obsidian. He's an incredibly intelligent obsidian. Yeah, but that that phrase is strange. Yep, I'm, if it's, I'm if to... it's anything else other than referring to them being together, it's it's a strange phrase, but it's not well defined enough to make that call, I feel like. In this moment I suddenly realized why Gorgo smiled when I called him the duke's man. That's all it says. That's a tough one. I think you're probably right. Like I, that seems to be the best answer, but I I don't know if I'm missing something. I don't know if I'm I don't know if there's an obvious like explanation that I just completely ignored, but that was my vague understanding. It's probably that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think you're right. Gorgo is kind of like I mean, the way that I also think about it in addition is maybe that Gorgo is like the Duke's insurance policy in a lot of ways. He is he he will stop at no end to ensure that everything goes well, you know, because the fact yeah, that he's even that, set that up like a sniper. Even that doesn't make sense for that comment, though. No, I'm not I'm not saying it's full, but I think that there's something there. There is. I don't, I don't think that that's like the foolproof or bulletproof rationale. So it's a it's a tough question to answer. Mm hmm. Okay, well, that's that's Ephraim. Uh, anything else on this whole section? Uh, um, nope. I don't think oh, they, so. Um, oh, is there? Let's see. The only the only other thing that I was going to say that I found really great is there's a number of quick pieces of imagery that Pierce uses to kind of move through this the scene as they're escaping very intelligently, like they're they're like running through a dinner at one point, and like Electra grabs a. Like an octopus tentacle and eats it. Like there's just some like great shots that you can Again, imagine. Easily. I'm just imagining Fang like running <laughs> through and grabbing just a handful of like squid. Like I'm just imagining yeah, a bunch basically. of squid on a plate. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's the only other thing that I can think of that I just thought of. But God, I haven't seen really Dave the Barbarian in such a long time. Do you think it's streaming anywhere? That's a good question. Do you think it holds up? <laughs> I, I doubt it. <laughs> I somehow doubt that calling a, mo- a child a monkey holds up that well <laughs> to adult humor. <laughs> With that, we move into chapter 59, Lyria Forgiveness. I love this chapter title. It's obviously been the theme of Lyria's character as we've like plowed through this entire book, her kind of like need to plow through life and trying to fight to survive. But I think that this turn towards forgiveness and still understanding like Ephraim's internal sadness is a good one coming to terms with Virginia a little bit later. That entire process on display here is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I think she surprises herself like obviously she surprises herself with uh with the for like the the relief that she has when she learns that Ephraim is alive but i i think it's it has a lot to do with the pain that she's had to deal with and understanding the pain that Ephraim has dealt with in the past and knowing what pain can drive someone to do I, I think it's it's just kind of a connection on a personal level of how similar they are for very different reasons, not faulting him for 
acting in such a way as a result of that, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I think that that makes a ton of sense. I think that that clicks fully with her her character. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what else to like build off of there. I'm a very astute reader, Crossland. Every once in a while, you know? <laughs> <laughs> something, something, broken clock, something, something. Holiday's reflection on Ephraim's pain is really intense, I think, giving him even more backstory and consequence and really kind of filling out the reason that he's so pissed off and sad all the time at losing his troops. And I, I think that all of that really clicks. And to get it right at the end here from this perspective and understand that Holiday like even in the earlier scenes puts up with him partially because she knows everything that she he's been through and understands the pain. And you know, I, man, it's tough. And then the quote, of course, that kind of accompanies this is point is if Ephraim, Ephraim wants to die, but he can't, that's his curse. Mm -hmm. I think, I think what makes the most sense about all of this for me is his assertion that he and Volga aren't friends through the entire book. And he, it's not that he's convincing her that they're not friends. It's convincing him. He's convincing himself that they're not friends. So he, he can try to isolate himself from that feeling and from that from that pain and fear. Yeah. Well, right. And so that's that's a big part of the Zolodone. And I think you bringing up Volga and invoking Volga here is really, really smart for for him. And he's constantly trying to talk himself out of being a good person, even though he very clearly can be when he chooses to be i mean and he he does he's able to keep like her interests in mind volga's interests in mind while you know going through this entire mission that's why he doesn't give up the kids right away and he just wants to ensure volga's safety volga's pardon so i, th I think that's also why i think he, i think he made a crucial mistake with lyria in that he actually spent time talking to her and building a rapport, which was kind of necessary for the for the for the task at hand, but it complicated things, and he got sort of a friendship feeling and understanding a familiarity with her that made it. It just pushed it over the edge into friendship, so he couldn't kill her. Mm -hmm. It's very true. I wonder if there's any part of that story that could have gone a little bit differently, or if he just decided that friendship was the best angle to ensure that she would wear it all the time. You know, well, that it, it was clearly the one thing that she was lacking. It was the one yeah. weakness that she really, really, really wanted to fill. Like it, it's a void that she wanted to fill and that he could. So it was the mm -hmm. easiest approach to getting, getting in her good graces, graces and like manipulating her to the point that he needed. So, but, but it was ultimately his downfall. Truly. Yeah, I I mean truly it was it was his own hubris. That's that's really a good point, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think Lyria's reaction as well to Virginia's plea for forgiveness is fantastic. Virginia getting down on her knees and, you know, kind of kneeling before her asking for forgiveness is a really interesting kind of shocking moment, especially from Lyria's perspective. It's it's necessary for a character to see, hear, and understand that even, you know, these people, in quotes, are still just people, just like her, doing their best and going about life as best they can, even if they're, you know, large and in charge. Uh, we've, of course, we, of course, understand this about Virginia, and we kind of, we know the world through her eyes. Well, I mean, not directly through her eyes, but we understand. It's it's a tough spot to be in, but it's, it's good that Lyria is kind of finally opening up and seeing this and getting to have that 
perspective. The, the quote here that I like is uh, letting go of that anger doesn't spit on the memories of Ava or Tyrion or the children. It honors them. And for the first time I can remember, I feel hope. So in context, love it. Makes sense. Totally, totally nice, mature conclusion to come to. But that like when I first read your, your notes on this and it had that quote in there, I'm like, I don't know if I agree with that as a, as a general like idea, sometimes anger, it can be motivated towards something non-destructive, but it just kind of dropping it doesn't necessarily honor those that died as a result of what made you angry. But in context, this makes sense, you know? Yeah, I I totally agree with you on that front. I don't think that this is something that universally applies or feels like it's universally applicable. It feels very direct and immediate to Lyria and her situation and what she's kind of presented with. Mm-hmm. There's obviously a little bit of shock and awe, of course, that this is the sovereign that's kneeling and willing to do anything for her, you know, including the the bit with Liam and like making sure that he's in a good school and like, yeah, I'll visit him, I'll bring him cake and like that whole thing is is very sweet and touching. Well, that that um, was that was Holiday afterwards. Was it? Yeah. It was as Holiday was walking her out, she was asking to go see Liam. Oh, yeah. Yep. yep. And she said, I, "I'll bring him some cake." Like he didn't even know that you were in danger. You he she he thought you were on an errand. Yep. But um I think I think the the more pressing quote on this that wasn't mentioned and not to step on like what you wrote out, but the, uh, no, no. I think she's starting to remember. I, I don't know the quote off the top of my head and I could open it up, but that would take time. But her realizing that Mustang has also been through, through the mud, so to speak, and that she's finally yeah. coming to, uh, a memory of that. I, I thought that was a good re- revelation for Lyria, but also, um, tracks for Mustang. Like she, she hasn't had to face those hardships in a while. And is now kind of in a situation where she needs to really kind of remember the shit that she went through in order to to get this built, you know? That's a great point and a great perspective, I think, mm-hmm. on Mustang. It's really it's really interesting. Something that we didn't put into the predictions. What do you what do you think's gonna what's going on with Mustang in the next book, do you think? This is kind of our last touchstone, touch point with her here inside of the story. What do you think is uh, is going on? So I I'll touch on it later. Um, at the, at the end during my predictions, but I think she gets overthrown and, and de dethroned as sovereign. And from there, I think she, I don't think she puts up a fight with it. And I think she does what she can to work within the private sector for, for the reds that have been displaced unfairly by, um, by the Republic within um, in those camps as a, as a direct result of her interactions with Lyria. Hmm. Interesting. It goes more of a philanthropic route. Okay. I like that idea. So we end Lyria's section in oh, the book just, just with be, a, before we move on from there. Yeah. Um, I, I think that really harkens back to the, the first time we really get to talk to Mustang in red rising where she, she's, she's singing EO's song and it's clear that she has this, compassion for what was going on in the moment and the plight of the reds she understands it to an extent and 
that would be a, a really poetic return to form in, in, in her character arc. Yeah, that's a great point. I think that that makes sense as a logical prediction. The, the section ends, of course, with Lyria under threat of violence. Uh, Brown is in her room pointing a gun at her and says, House Barca sends the regards. So the story basically ends there. And kind of the, the questions are, what do you think's in store for our poor Red? What do you think? Who, do you have any clues or thoughts on who you think the Brown is? What's kind of your read on the whole situation? So, again, this is within the predictions, but... Um at least in the immediate until Pax and Electra and really Severo for that matter are safe and home. I think she's going to be tortured basically until she dies or they're, or they're safe. One of the two. I don't think Victra will really listen to, or even if she uh, entertains the idea of listening to Mustang, I don't think she'll put much weight into it. Maybe the Telemonises, if they, if they come and talk to, talk to Victra, maybe they could, convince her that uh Lyria's on the up and up within this whole situation but mostly i think she'll just be tortured unfortunately as far as who the brown is clearly it's a cook <laughs> and we're we're really tying together this whole cook theme to the to the series aruka just shows up out of nowhere <laughs> somehow connected Mm. from uh, all the way from gaia in the rim what, uh, what are yeah. browns other than cooks like i know, cooks, I know janitors, janitors general work okay. they're like slightly more specialized reds i yeah okay so there's the color connection for you though red is basically just a more specified brown but anyway <laughs> sorry that was dumb um <laughs> do you i i don't think it's actually a brown i think it's okay maybe a gray or someone in disguise okay as a means of, of traveling through the uh the facility unnoticed hmm. okay chapter 60 <laughs> darrow ashes to ashes title of this chapter of course is great um it we finally actually meet a character who's kind of been is loo- it great large over it seems like way too obvious of a pun i don't think that it's necessarily i don't feel like it's it's just desserts like it doesn't feel punny to me so much as it feels like very I feel like just point. desserts referring to ashes to ashes would have been a better title, a more clever title. This is this is not a bad title to the chapter by any stretch. Like it's a great title to the chapter, but I don't think it's that clever. It's a little on the nose. Well, I, I yeah, I think it's meant to be on the nose. I guess that was kind of my point. Is like it's not. It's not th- him. Didn't being you just clever. say it was so clever? I guess I didn't mean clever. I guess okay. I think I. I mean more like you might have not said clever. And I just apt. Okay. Yeah. It's it's that that would be more the way that I would think about it. Okay. It's very. I feel apt like title. I feel like fighting today. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> scrappy right now. It's it's okay. Maybe. Uh, so the appearance of I the feel like fighting Lord, because you made me finish this book. I think that I dragged you through this entire thing, so you could really blame it on me in the long term. If you're you basically to. my personal jackal, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's awful. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, I guess I the scepter, you the sword. Mm. <laughs> uh, the appearance. <laughs> I can't roll out of this that easily. <laughs> I'm gonna take a drink. <laughs> fuck 
Wow, this is really strong today. Mm-hmm. Big, big oof. All right. So the appearance of the ass lord, I mean, the ash lord, <laughs> is He's, one that is He is very so decrepit that he has no ass anymore. Let's be real. <laughs> Correct. Correct. It, it's just funny that Severo calls him the ass lord because, you know, clearly that's something that he and the howlers would probably do over time. Feels very apt before they like charge into the room to do that it's it's kind of an anti-climax though as his demise has happened has happened in quotes or you know he's sunk this low from other hands what did you make of this whole reveal of magnus algrimis and the state that he's in and everything else obviously like technically it's at at the hands of someone else it's not at the hands of Darrow or Apollonius or Severo or anybody related to them. But it's kind of at the hands of Apollonius. It's at his word, at his command. But man, I was expecting something. Not from the Ash Lord. Like, I wasn't expecting... I wasn't entirely, like, shocked by this. Not because of what happened to the Ash Lord, but because I still didn't trust anything about Apollonius. So my first thought was, that fucker, I knew it. Not that Mm -hmm. I knew that this is what he was doing, but because I knew that there was something else. And then then it went to, oh shit, like, this fucks everything. Yeah. But we still get to see him burnt to death. And that's pretty, pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's, I mean, A, like, that moment is fantastic. We'll talk about that more when we get there. Um a little bit more near the end of this, but the the whole moment with Magnus is just made to be this like tiny, frail man, and it obviously, as we've mentioned, it really kind of fucks with everything because the suicide mission no longer makes any sense because the Ash Lord is basically in in a, in hospice care, like he is literally hanging on to life, yeah. um, not in charge of anything. So it's boo. I remember the first time that I read this and like there there are things hanging around him, but it's not what you think it is. It's metal. They're made of metal and they're keeping him alive. And I was like, fuck. Wow. Shit. Yeah. All that for this? Like, oh, no. It's like it's like fighting Fidel Castro when he's <laughs> just kind of sick and dying in bed. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like invading Cuba while he's actually dead the whole time. Yeah. Pretty much. This is actually funny because you were pretty close to this with the Kim Jong-il comment you yes. made a while back. Yes, I absolutely and was. Um, I just, I had what, to bring it up. Was was it, did I make that comment about the Ash Lord? I believe so. And I said that it was Atlantia the, the whole time? Yes. Yep, I did. I did say that. Yep. Holy yeah. shit. So, what did you think when I said that? <laughs> I was like, I cannot react. I cannot react. <laughs> <laughs> I say nothing, Crossland. Say nothing. Okay. Uh, ooh, all right. We're fine. We're oh, good. God. Um, I forgot. I forgot that that was like. I knew I talked about Kim Jong Il. I just forgot that that was about the Ash Lord. I think I said something like that'd be really interesting. You know, like I usually do. <laughs> I like just kind of choked up. I remember. I think I had to mute myself on my own microphone um, and just kind of let you continue talking. Oh fuck. All yeah. right, Crossland, we need to make a supercut of all the, like, ridiculous pr- predictions that, like, are way too far off for me to, like, actually have a good grasp on. <laughs> and, like, I'm just <laughs> making wild shots in the dark. It's a wild accusation. Like, absolutely 
insane. That has to be the one that I I actually didn't believe the most and thought it'd be funny to liken it to that. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's part of the reason that I remember not laughing at it immediately is because I didn't want to, like, give it away, you know? Like... <laughs> That one was a painful one, so I wasn't, I wasn't even, like, trying to push for it because I was sitting there in just the moment being like, all right, what's the next prediction PJ is going to pull out of his asshole? So, the destroyer of a civilization too often resembles its founders is a really interesting quote that I, I liked from the Ash Lord. I think that it's fairly interesting and meta, and I think it really kind of highlights what Darrow has become in this kind of transition to the Reaper. We're going to talk about this a lot. Um, over the course of the rest of this book but that's this is kind of a a signal of that line yeah and obviously it harkens the iron golds and really makes the title of the book make sense along with lysander and romulus later on in this section it's the first time that darrow was not the first time but the first time in a while that darrow was really in, in a very real way compared to the Iron Golds, in, in an explicit way. Yeah, I think that he kind of had embraced traditions of Iron Golds previously, and so it was mentioned in a couple, I, I think like even, I, I want to say it's Roke or something referred to him like a precious Iron Gold or something, the Iron Golds that you so idolize. I can't remember, it was either Roke or Octavia. It could have been Octavia, it could have been the Jackal, it's one of the three really useless here in terms of my contribution with this random yeah what the fuck i thought you were like the the voracious reader that like understands things and (laughs) leads this discussion uh (laughs) like this is more this is more proof that i should be the leader is talking still (laughs) and shouldn't be good good little boy all right so (laughs) tarot I can't believe I did that. Uh, Darrow, <laughs> you're right. You're totally right in terms of the, this is kind of a point of which he he's truly kind of given the title, you know, and I've got a lot to say and about it, kind of, it's the, not, it's not explicitly said, but it is very, implied. very explicitly implied. Not a, yeah. Explicitly implied is an oxymoron, but correct. Yeah. It is implied to the point where it'd be hard to interpret it any other way. Yes. Yeah. And that's clearly, clearly what Magnus is talking about, staring at the Reaper uh, and and kind of thinking about these different things. What's what's really interesting is if we we can compare two arguable iron golds right next to each other in their own right. Right. We've got Apollonius, who is striving actively to kind of chase after that iron gold dragon of sorts. Like, it's not like he's he's not like, I want to be an iron gold, but he's like, I know how to make myself an iron gold. Yeah. And Darrow just kind of is by nature of his mission and his his sort of desire to succeed at any cost. And I think it's interesting that these two folks are obviously standing right next to each other as Magnus calls out to Darrow as, you know, effectively calling him an iron gold. But there's a there's a quote later on and we're going to like it's in chapter 63, but I think it's way too apt now to leave it until then, because I I think it's really important to bring it up now. And it's the quote from Romulus. Chaos is the nature of man, order, the dream of gold. We were made to shepherd to unite despite the differences. That is what uh 
that is what, what uh, that is what Romulus told me in the end, and he's right. This is from Lysander, but uh, specifically, we were made the shepherd to unite despite the, our differences. Um, that's exactly what Darrow's kind of been about the entire fucking time. Like he, not necessarily the shepherding part, but that's what Gold is good at. Like they're good at leading. I would argue that Darrow himself has been a shepherd. He has you know, been. Like not, he has been. He's not he, shepherding he's been, it through the colors. He's, he's been fighting for true, like, true equality within the colors, which is noble and great and the right thing to do. But by design and by genetic manipulation, the colors, each color is good and built for something specific. And they can kind of deviate from that within the Republic if they want to, but... They're going to fall into the things that they're good at naturally, um, for the most part. And golds are good at leading. They're good at shepherding. Arguably so, because they're trained to. Yes. Yes, that's true. Very arguable. Like, v- that's a very good argument to make. They're, they're trained to do that. I'd be curious to see, like, is there... I, I'd be curious to see what the actual genetic differences are. Because I, mm-hmm. I don't know in this sci-fi world if they have just a different brain than the other colors that can kind of just naturally put them in a state of leadership better, or if they're just trained to do that. That'd be that'd be really interesting to see. Um, because there's obviously other genetically manipulated traits. I don't know if I don't know if brain function is part of that. Um. If it was, then maybe they should be in leadership positions. If it's not, then fuck what I'm saying. It doesn't matter at all. <laughs> um, but just the, the idea of Darrow as an iron gold following that sort of philosophy makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah, totally. I mean... He, and he always, regardless, he's following the image and life of Lorne and thinking about that constantly and reflecting on it very internally, um, wherein Lorne is kind of kind of was a Marcus Aurelius for Darrow. Darrow is kind of also now a Marcus Aurelius. He's kind of been handed the reins and is following kind of a similar path. I mean, not entirely the same, but at the very least philosophically and mentally, he's very much in the same place. I'm curious about Marcus Aurelius in this moment. Specifically, just in in his life, did he take on personal students, like a lot of the philosophers of ancient years Um, did? So what's weird about Marcus Aurelius is that he wasn't a necessarily a philosopher and all of that was very private so meditations is really just his journals so no one knew that he was like this they knew the way that he acted and how he behaved and how he held himself as this example meditations was never meant to be more than a diary of sorts um so but that said it's not as though he didn't also take on apprentices or you know like his own child to kind of his children to kind of try to raise them. So they'd follow that example, of course, epically failed with that one. But did, um, what do you mean? Uh, his first son after he died. Well, so Marcus Aurelius, of course, was an emperor of Rome. I don't, I assume you knew that. Yep. Yeah. And his son, the next God, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. 
I, I want to say it's like Gaius or Caius or something like that. Um, he actually led to the basically the end of Rome. Okay, so that's that's Darrow then. <laughs> straight Commodus. up, Commodus. Yeah, like that's straight up Darrow. He led to the end of the society. Well. Yeah, but Marcus Aurelius wasn't trying to tear down the society. You Neither know, it was, was Lorne. Incidental and accidental. Oh, okay, so you're saying Lorne fits into that. Got it. No, Lorne is Marcus Aurelius. Yeah, right. And then Darrow, oh, and Darrow is, is... Yeah. Whoever. Yeah, Darrow isn't really Commodus, though. Because, Not yet. <laughs> okay, okay. I see where you're going. All right, <laughs> fair enough. Um, we, we can... <laughs> We can we can leave that hand grenade right there, that live grenade. <laughs> okay. We'll we'll reapproach it when we finish Dark Age. <laughs> you can you can evaluate that grenade again. We'll <laughs> think about it more. But I don't think you're that far off in terms of a lot of the uh, symbolism here between the characters. Mm-hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. Okay. We, we get. We'll, we'll, uh, I'm just gonna revel in my in my thoughts about what's what's gonna happen. I'm going to have to read about this dude and see <laughs> because no, I, I don't think I will. I'm not going to read about it until after I make predictions. <laughs> That's fair. With this, we move into what I think is one of the best quotes from Magnus here. It's, it's fantastic in kind of the way that it analyzes things. He says, I see you kept our scar and our eyes. Then what if red remains? Dara replies enough. Magnus continues, ah, I suppose that is why what every man must tell himself in war, that there will be an end, and when it is done, enough of himself will remain, enough to be a father, a brother, a lover. But we know it isn't true, don't we, Darrow? War eats the victors last. I think that that quote is absolutely incredible and fantastic and kind of paints the fantasy that we can we've continually referenced from the that chapter that happened early on with darrow in the fact that he's not alone in sharing that fantasy we've kind of talked about this before with lorne referencing this and wanting you know for just darrow for to be a good man not a warrior and kind of having those same dreams for him and instead of course it became the war machine that we we know and love uh (laughs) Darrow is, of course, consumed by this war and the promise of that distant fantasy, and it it seems as though Magnus is implying that it's never one that he's going to be able to return to. Right in front of him is someone emblematic of that very fate, that inability to return to the fantasy or or to be a parent and to kind of move back to that. We've we've had plenty of other examples similar in their own right. Fitchner, Nero, Octavia, Lorne even was all were all consumed by their own wars, their own fights, preventing them from being able to be present in the lives of their children and be the, the parents that they wanted to be in addition to the um, warmongers that they were. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's a lot. <laughs> Yes. And I think I need to break that up a little bit. So first first part of that, um, he made mention of the scar, of Darrow keeping the scar. And I think it's important to remember that the scar is something that he earned himself through, through really, it was set up as 
a trial for the entire like gold population, but really it, it acts as basically a personal trial. Um, and it, it's something that Darrow achieved on a personal level with, with some help from ridiculous body manipulation surgeries. Let's not mention that that much, um, <laughs> but I mean, it brought him into, into line with golds. Mm-hmm. Um, but for that, I think it makes total sense for him to have personal understanding of and personal meaning for the scar. I, I, I think, yes, it is something that is inherent to gold society, but he can put whatever personal like meaning to it that he wants. Um, as far as his eyes go, those were and are still in the head of <laughs> of Severo. So you can't really take those back. Um I am curious though, like does it ever mention the differences in like eyesight between the colors? Like I, I feel like just for some reason I feel like reds have better night vision because they're in the mines. But I don't know if that's actually true. Do you remember I- that? I think there was something about that all the way back in the original Red Rising, his eyes being used to the mines and kind of adjusted. Um, the other component, because when he emerges, he's like not used to the light at all. And I also think post the surgery when he gets the new eyes, that's he he basically, I think, says something along the lines of like everything sharper as though the fidelity was turned up. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. But um, getting into the second half of what you rambled on about, um, in that like 30 minute long question, um, <laughs> war eats the victors last makes sense in this situation. If you don't separate the existence of the reaper th- versus Darrow himself. Um, but while they're in the same body, like we've mentioned, we've talked about this. I think we talked about it really at length last episode. Um, they're v- very clearly two distinct personalities, and in this situation, the Reaper is the victor in the war, but Darrow is the one being consumed. And maybe, like, maybe that's the point that the Ash Lord is trying to make. That um, all the aforementioned characters, um, Lorne, Fitchner, Octavia, Magnus, all of them, and more, um, they they kind of had to split their personalities too. And their better selves, the ones that are devoted to family and being a good person and just kind of living, suffers and gives way to and leaves only the warlords behind. I think you hit it on the head as far as the the war and victors comments comment goes. I think that it is really interesting that they the warlords are left to be eaten last, but in reality they've been eaten and consumed by this the whole time. Right. And it, it consumes the rest of their lives regardless of when the end actually comes for them. Mm -hmm. You know, they just happen to be the last ones that actually die. That's, that's the difference. Right. Yeah. I think that it it's also very emblematic to just reference the four that we already talked about, Fitchner, Nero, Octavia, and Lorne. They are emblematic of those 
like and, sins and coming back Magnus. to get them. And the Ashley. And Magnus, yep. Right. Um they all feel very emblematic of those same choices and sacrifices and the impact can be seen obviously throughout the series as you take this quote and you can very easily apply it to Fitchner who was unable to be there for his child and really rear him in an appropriate way. They have a relationship, but they don't have a great one. And Severo constantly reflects on how he wish he had more time with his dad and like, Oh, like dear old dad getting consumed by the war. I don't want that to happen to me and my kids. So he's like fighting against that. That's why he's able to separate himself from Aries. The, Cause he's seen it. I think the really interesting part of this is how this doesn't apply to Romulus. That's true. Actually not consumed by the leadership at all, but also he didn't really push for war. He was, he was fighting conflicts. He, he wasn't a warmonger. That's true. That's a good point. You know, he, yeah, he doesn't find himself consumed by it, but he does find himself consumed by the, the lie that he told. So that's interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. In terms of the scar, I want to, I wanted to kind of work my way back around to that. I think that, to just say that he earned the scar and that it was a rite of passage doesn't fully acknowledge that the the whole passage was wrong and that the the kind of torture, the psychological torture that he was put through as a, as a kid or as a teenager to earn that, uh, sure, earned it, but he earned it because of the existing power structure and that's the only reason he had to. So... In a way, he probably should have gotten rid of it so as to reject the golds and the society's standards. But without it, just he wouldn't like be the sigils. Reaper. He wouldn't be the Reaper without it. No, that's not true. Without the scar on his face, he's still the Reaper. No, but he still y- mentally earned it. Yes, but uh, I, I don't think I don't think the earning it is the same as earning it in the eyes of a gold child. I think it means two very different things between what he attributes the scar and and what what it means to a lot of the peerless scarred within gold society. I think it I think it has two very different meanings. But without without what he went through to earn that scar, he wouldn't be the Reaper. He wouldn't be where he is today. Yeah, of of course not. Of course not. So I, 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 I think I think he's attributing or I, I think he's putting meaning to that scar, rejecting the meaning that it traditionally has and giving it meaning that is personal to him and what he's achieved and where he's come from. And it, Which and is and the achievement of the warlord. Right. And it has nothing to do with the typical like achievement of the peerless guard so that that feeds back in though to the the comment that magnus is making here you know you kept your skies your scar eyes and everything else and you know what of red remains darrow later admits that actually nothing of red remains um and to me the scar is more a symbol of the society and at the very least it's something that the people that are of the society can sneer at like Magnus literally does here being like, ah, yes, you couldn't forge yourself in the fire. You had to use us as your way to get through everything else. Like we're still a part of your foundation. You know, you're not as clean. Your hands aren't as clean as they, you think they are. You aren't as removed from the trappings of what, what came before of the conquerors of the golds. He does, but he never talks about it either. 
Correct. So when it's brought up here, he doesn't even respond to it either. He doesn't. He doesn't bring it up in his response. No, he doesn't bring it up. But they ask, "What of red remains?" Nothing enough and then later he says nothing of red remains so i think that that so is is nothing like is that are those the same answer or was he lying at one point like is nothing of red enough to continue on or or is so like zero percent red is enough is that what he's saying no, I think that he was lying here and saying that enough red, like whatever, we'll just sign an arbitrary number, ten percent, uh, is there, and it's it's what fuels him. And then later he's saying that no, there actually isn't any red. I'm just the reaper. I don't know if I agree with that. Let's. I think. That's what he says. Um, no, it, it's not. He says what what of red remains, and he says enough. But then later he contradicts that. That's what no, I'm saying. No, he, he, that's what I'm saying is I don't think it's a contradiction. I think 0% red for him is enough. Meaning no red is enough. Correct. Which means he's the same. Or the, memory, actually, the, the memory of red. That's contradict. Like, is it contradictory? I don't think it is. So here's, here's the quote from 594 the red boy inside me would run home to his family but i cannot the ash lord was right nothing of red remains i am trapped in my duty like lauren like magnus like octavia okay the simply because of the existence of the ash lord was right in that quote proves you right and me wrong but i don't know i mean I, there there is something to be said that darrow is an unreliable asshole who occasionally like lies to us um I but. feel like Pierce has learned from his mistakes since then. <laughs> Perhaps. I didn't actually see that, what what I just referenced as an egregious problem, but a lot of people do. Oh, no. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. So, I mean, we, we've, talked, we've talked a lot about this, just, just to come to a conclusion to some degree. Um, Magnus is right. I mean, regardless, Magnus calls, calls a spade a spade here. And even though Darrow's willing to fight him on it, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with Magnus for sure. Yeah, like I, I do too. It, the the fight that I was putting up against you was whether or not the scar Darrow believed. Well, the scar is different. Um, the scar is a different fight that I'll fight to the nail about because because I, <laughs> I feel like it. Um, but I'm punchy today. <laughs> I am punching today. today, but I, when I was trying to rationalize all of this and really think about what was going on, my brain immediately went to, there is no red left. Darrow knows that, but he also knows that red wasn't helpful for him mm. in this situation and in the position that he's in. So no red being left is still enough red. That makes makes enough sense. But that second quote that you brought up kind of debunks that a little bit. Right. I can understand that being the reaction read, though, off the bat. The the one other thing that I want to bring up here with the scar uh, is is something that you said. I think you might be right in the way that he wears it as a reminder, perhaps. Um, That that could work. We just it never gets so explicit as saying that. Yeah, he like he kind of brushes it off. But because there's, the, because there are other things in the conversation with the Ash Lord in that sentence 
in that paragraph that the Ash Lord says that are more pressing pressing to respond to. Right. The the other thing that I want to bring up here too is that he doesn't have sigils on his hand though, which is like a reminder of the society. So why wouldn't he get rid of the scar? Feels like a parallel thing. That, you know? That's that's why I feel like it's a more personal growth thing. That's a reminder of what's what he went through in order to achieve this, versus something that was just given to him by the society. Correct. It's interesting because because the the sigils are are not earned. He didn't have to go through anything to earn the sigils. He just had to be born. But the the scar, he actually had to suffer. He suffered a lot. He suffered a lot more than most peerless scarred. True. On a personal level. That's that's without a doubt. The <laughs> I'm I'm now just imagining Darrow as the Joker going like, you want to know how I got these scars? <laughs> like, <to laughs> everyone like bragging about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I do. I, I see where you're coming from. And that does make that makes sense. I just still like I sit in this question of like, why? I think we could you, honestly, honestly, this question, I think we could have a full on two hour episode on like, I think this is true. the longest we've ever gone on a single question ever. Probably true. Except for maybe the conversation about Darren the Reaper last week, but. Mm, maybe it's gotta be close maybe so with that let's move into the next little bit here uh and then of course the reveal that we discussed earlier apollonius poisoned magnus from deep grave and atlania has been pulling the strings for the last three years the ash lord even fires his own words back at him that we've heard before in the very first book i would have lived in peace but they brought me war is what was said in the first book and he basically recants it uh Magnus recants it from Atlantia that she is would have lived in peace, but will bring war. That dick, first of all, what a fucking bastard Apollonius is. Mm-hmm. But God, like, do, does it give some sense to what what Apollonius did and how he held himself the entire time? Mm-hmm. Like, he was calm. He was never hostile. Like he, he, I would have expected some hostility and he never showed any. So this, this makes all of that make sense. Yeah. With, without a doubt. I mean, if you knew if like, okay, so if you're in his shoes, right. And you've got a bomb in your head and Darrow's like, I want to take out the Ash Lord. You're like, well, I, I disabled the Ash Lord, but if I let you know that I'm, I'm, you could dispend with me and it would change everything if you knew that. Right. So he continues with it anyway to try to earn himself his freedom. Right. The Ash Lord kind of drops a final bomb on the group of them. He knows of the children's abductions, despite ver- everything Virginia has done to keep it quiet. It slipped its way back into the society rem- remnant and both Severo and Darrow kind of break down at those moments. He also poses it as a question to Darrow. It was one of yours that sold out the kids. Who do you think that could possibly be? Okay. We, we focused so much on her when she was first mentioned. Like, this is clearly a meta answer. Like, this, this, is, this is a me and you talking meta answer, um, which I don't think is that fair, but it's all I talk, thought about the entire time. Like, we focused on her a ton for, like, an episode or two. 
Okay. And then she really wasn't present in the book for the rest of the time. So until she died in, last week, did she? Yeah, she got yeah, cut, she got she cut, she cut got in decapitated. Half. She got cut in half. That's still that's still enough time. That's still she's still alive enough. Like that could that could have easily have just been any other howler. That she was alive long enough to have done this, and she was brought in to all of this through kidnapping. You know, mm-hmm. like she was kidnapped in the institute. And I, I could easily see her as plotting for years to bring this whole thing down. Yeah, so a little bit meta, but I, I think I think we focus too much on Milia for her not to be a more important aspect of this story to just get cut down unceremoniously. So, her. Yeah. Okay, all right. Then... The Ashlord burns and the bill finally comes due for him in Lauren's words. One big bad down and um, maybe some more to go. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. I I think it's a little bit beyond maybe at this point. We know who they are. (laughs) There's a bunch of them. Mm -hmm. There's question whether or not Lysander is a big bad at this point. That's interesting. Are you... Do you have any other thoughts on the big bads? Well, I mean, there's Dido. There's sure. Alan Axolotlantia. <laughs> Atalantia. Um, so that's three. There's Dancer, who's not necessarily a strict military adversary, but he could, you could consider him an adversary at this point. There's still the idea of, is the Red Hand still ex- in existence? I think they are. Yeah, Harmony, the Red Hand. Yeah, so there's that. And that that didn't get any sort of re- resolution in this book. Nope, <laughs> it got picked up at the beginning of the book, and then we moved on. <laughs> there's a bunch. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of problems, and I think Darrow should just kind of lie down and... Uh, Take a nap for a while. Think about it. Do some meditating. Darrow, of course, uh, Write some meditations, maybe. Write some meditations, perhaps, yeah. Maybe these are secretly his meditations. Uh, Darrow reemerges. The veil of safety he thought he had built for his family shattered. All I w- the, the quote here, all I wanted was to be a father, and now my son is lost. I think he, he hides behind i think that's his his safety blanket that's his his uh his security blanket to a certain extent like oh no i just wanted to be a dad like just let me let me be a dad and i I don't think it's genuine in the slightest i think it's it's what he reverts to when things aren't going well but he he wants to be the reaper i think he wants to I think he has to also, but I think he wants to. And I think he's trying to fight against that want. I think he's trying to fight against that desire, but I think he really, really wants to. I think he also wants to be a father, but I don't think that he wants it as bad as he wants other things. Right. You know, exactly. that's, that's really the thing. That's really kind of my comment on it is it's like, he's, he's not saying the only thing I wanted was to be a father. He's saying all I wanted was to be a father. 
Hey folks, I don't have a really good way of cutting back from this uh, this question. PJ and I ended up discussing this for near 25 minutes, some semantics around uh, some word choice that was used instead of this quote, and I quoted it wrong. So I'm just going to save you guys the time, cut out that <laughs> argumentative banter, and get right back to it. So I try not to do this often, but it felt really necessary given the context of everything else around this section. It, what's even worse is that I actually quoted it wrong. You ready oh, for this? You? Yeah. Okay. All I wanted to be then was a father. Okay. And now my son <laughs> is lost. It changes everything. <laughs> <laughs> so we go from that to chapter 61, Lysander, the Moon Lord. You're going to cut me I off think- like that. <laughs> <laughs> Just like that. Just like okay. that. Okay. It's even more meta. That's hilarious. The trial and the oh, evidence is really. Also, I was taking I a drink. A it was beer. terrible. <laughs> what? <laughs> I just I just opened a new beer. Nice, nice. Uh, the, I I think that the trial and the evidence is really interesting. The idea of having the charge levied against the accuser if the accused is proven false is, I think, an interesting one. You know, as like Lysander says, it's draconic, but it's interesting. It is. Dr- it is draconic but and and it's also open to some really harsh injustice much like just capital punishment in general is open Mm -hmm. to injustice if if things are improperly ruled but ultimately i don't wholly disagree with the idea of a harsh retribution for false allegations it's like libel right yeah kind of I I am curious, um, what would the repercussions be for a state trial in which the defendant is ruled innocent? And I I guess, I guess this is kind of a state trial, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, but Dido is the one bringing up the accusations, so she's the one responsible for it. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I, I feel like this system would leave... A lot of really intense criminals untouched because nobody wants to try to accuse them of anything to bring up the case because they'd be the ones on on the gallows if they're proven innocent. So, like, yeah, in a in a perfect world where you could truly like determine innocent and guilt, innocence and guilt. Um, mm-hmm great like i am totally for this but in the world that we live in and even the sci-fi world that we're reading about things are a little bit more muddy than that and things are subjective and things are ruled incorrectly sometimes and that's that's one of the most compelling arguments against capital punishment is uh, just improper rulings yeah I think that the whole thing is very um, – it's a robustly interesting and complicated system despite sort of the, the simple whatever you accuse of, the, the punishment is back on you basically. So don't do anything mm-hmm. without evidence. Um, but the golds and the iron golds and the rim, rim gold specifically are uh, not – not selfish self is selfish isn't the word i'm looking for they're uh arrogant enough 
to believe that they'll rule justly regardless mm. and that they'll find the truth. So I think it makes sense to have that system in place because that system makes sense if you can truly prove what happened and they have, yeah, the, without they a doubt. have the hubris to do that. Right. I think hubris is a good word for that too. How that covers it. The read on the actions of an iron gold are interesting as well. I think that maybe we should interrogate the idea more since it's kind of Lysander who who's really kind of thinking about everything in terms of in terms of whether or not someone is or isn't an iron gold. So uh, given that iron golds were conquerors, it's important to remember they committed mass genocide. They, you know, absolutely decimated an entire population and they thought of their life to be superior to others. And so sought to cleanse a world of all those who disagreed with the color hierarchy as they had adapted to space. They established the society as we knew it. These were all kind of like traits that were being honored but they should actually spell a little bit more like doom and gloom and eugenics. And like we hear a lot of praise for it over the course of of this series. Obviously, we're mostly listening to the upper echelons of the Gold Society for the first two books. And then for the, the third book, we kind of escape that a little bit. But it's it's just good to remind ourselves that maybe maybe because Lysander cares about iron gold so much, he's kind of idolizing that the old ways. And sure, Romulus is an iron gold in hell. Like we said earlier, Darrow even embodies all of the traits of an iron gold, as does Apollonius. But that's not an objectively good thing to, you know, aspire mm-hmm. to be. Like, yeah. honor's good, but the rest of the baggage isn't that great. I, I think I can understand what Lysander and really anybody who's aspiring to be an iron gold is thinking at this moment. And it either simply ignores the genocide or justifies it based on the 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 idea that those deaths were sacrifices in order to birth the entire civilization that they're a part of like the 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 conquering of earth gave birth to the society that rules the solar system like it's what allowed humanity to leave earth and populate the rest of the galaxy uh it's horrible they're they're horrible terrible acts but they're the acts that made the society possible and for that reason they see it as something to be honored and i think in a real world in real life kind of example of that we've got the crusades and what the crusades did for christianity Christianity wouldn't be so widespread if it weren't for the Crusades, and the Crusades were essentially genocide. Yes. Um, the Crusades get a lot more complicated than that, but yeah, I, do, I see but what you're so, going for. So does, right. so does the conquering of, conquering of Earth by the Iron Golds, I'm sure, if you want to get granular about it. But we don't see that in, in this we don't see that described in the book series. Yeah, yeah, I guess I I guess my point is it was less I the the thing that I balk a little bit at is the 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 totality of the Christian faith being invoked there versus the the sort of Catholic diocese, which is what was in charge of that the crusades. Okay, so, so cath- that, Catholicism but, and yes. the crusades then. Right. Okay. I I misspoke. It's, it's a minor Sorry. Thing, but <laughs> it's a minor thing. 
But, you know, all, all told that just just saying that it's the Catholic Church a little, it also points it a little bit more directly at the politics of the situation. That said, that comparison is very apt in, in terms of what they were trying to accomplish and sort of any any sort of conqueror or colonial mindset, you know, like mm-hmm. we, we can very clearly and easily see that. And I mean, my description of that clearly shows my lack of understanding of the nuance between christianity as a whole and catholicism all this to say that like i agree with you in terms of the the sort of i think it even becomes more apt when you like separate out like like i just did those those were that was that was the old catholic church this is the new and that's also probably a fucking argument that little whiny boy lysander would make yeah is like but the, I, the standards I think it's of a completely gold. fair argument to make as well yeah right like right i i think the quote it was, but we forgot. Like that—that's—that's that's exactly the point he's making. Like the gold society of today is not what it was meant to be. Right. And right. what he's fighting for, and what the rim is fighting for, is what gold was meant to be, what it was supposed to be. The, and I mean, I mentioned it before. The quote. Like, I, I really, I really think we should have put this quote at the beginning. And I'm scrolling down to try to find it again. But the, uh, do you know where it's at? I keep missing uh, it. Uh, we were made to shepherd to unite despite yeah. our differences. Yep, yeah, exactly. So, like, that's, I, I think I mentioned it before, but the cafeteria Catholics, that is, that is the antithesis of what it means to be a Catholic. Even though it's following some of the principles it's only following some of the principles and it ignores some of the important ones as well. Like if you want to be something, you have to follow the tenets of what it was built on and ignoring it bastardizes it. Here's an interesting question. So are you saying that Lysander is a cafeteria iron gold? No, no. I'm saying that, because no what I, what i'm saying is lysander and romulus are both striving to be what iron golds were supposed to be sure and and the old the rest, golds the, are more like cafeteria golds well the 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 the, the core golds mm-hmm. octavia and everyone else in the core are kind of the cafeteria gold uh, iron golds that makes sense yep that's a good comparison i like that mm-hmm. Because it, like it, it follows the rules, but it, it ignores a lot of the rules. You follow, you pick and choose, like you said, cafeteria. Yeah, yeah exactly. A la carte. Yeah. So, to, cause I did we did we already talk about this? Did I mention what I thought cafeteria Catholicism meant? I don't remember. Like they would all go hang out in the cafeteria post, like <laughs> post. Like you're just doing it for no, the socialization no, I, I aspect. I don't think we talked about that, but if we did, I don't remember it, and I still find it I don't, funny. I don't. I don't think I mentioned it, but like literally, you know, like St. Ogg's or whatever in in town, uh, like everyone would. You'd go to church, and then you'd have donuts afterwards. You know, like everyone would have donuts and chat. And so when you said mm-hmm. cafeteria Catholic, that's immediately where my brain went. It's like, oh, you just go to church for the social. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> And then Chance strikes to levy additional charges. Romulus is accused of treason, of knowledge of burning the of of the burning of the docks of Ganymede, and he admitted 
he acknowledges that he knew about the burning from a hollow drop, the same one that was offered to Serafina. He is destined to be executed, as we see a little bit later here. What do you think of his admission as well as kind of the speech on honor? I, I think this is what makes me love Romulus as a character. Like, I, I love Romulus's character because of how he reacts to all of this stuff. He has such rigid scruples that he will, like, he will, like, adhere to them no matter what. He he is so committed. I, 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 I can't fault him for that. I, mm-hmm. I can't like him, but I can't fault him either. Like it, it makes it makes him an ironclad character for me. Like he he does not falter from what he believes in to the end. No, none the slightest. And I like it makes me respect his character more than anybody else in this entire series. What's so interesting is that I after reading this book, have a level of appreciation for the rim that is so deep. And it's not necessarily just Romulus. It's it's the fact that we've we've been told and taught these these are scruples that are at the very least attempted to be instilled into all of the the various children. We see this in Lorne trying to treat everything more like the rim. We see yeah, we, we see Diomedes, who's basically a younger version of Romulus in a lot of ways, following in that same kind of path. And man, I, t- I totally agree with you. Romulus is the most respectable character in, in a very strange turn of events from this section, from this chapter. I do not necessarily like Romulus, mm-hmm. but Romulus is my favorite character of the entire series because of how true he is to who he is. And what he believes in. Yes, more than Cavex. Cavex is kind of the same, though. You know? Like, he doesn't... He's not fucking around. But but he doesn't... Cavex has not, not so been presented... scruples and... Yeah. He hasn't presented... He hasn't been presented in that. Like, presented with, with the, like, opportunity to express his scruples like Romulus has. Sure. Yep. So, while I love... Cavex, and I w- will not let go of that undying love of Cavex. I, I am, I'm willing to say that Romulus is my favorite character, as far as how the character is written and how he presents himself. All right, I, I think he's the most well-written and like most disciplined character of the was- of the series. I was really curious when we got to him in Morningstar and kind of revisiting him from that lens after having read the recently reread the sequel series. I when I reapproached him, I was like, he even back then had a lot of these same kind of scruples and thought processes, and you can see them spinning in motion. Like I'd you like can to, see, I'd like to go back and reread that. Yeah, it's it, it's a great reread for a number of reasons, of course, because we have a deeper understanding of a- everything that was actually going on mm-hmm. and kind of the lie of the nukes and, and things like that. So recommend for sure. But it's um, but yeah, like yeah. I, I I am a little bit hesitant to say that on air because it, like he. Yes, it's at the very least not advocating for 
freedom and equal choice for everyone. Right. So, but he yeah. makes very good points, and I, I, he's advocating for something that I think is truly, like I, I think it's truly parallel to what Darewood would, what Darrow and Virginia would want in a society of the golds as the shepherds. Did you? Um, we're left with with his sentence to be returned to dust, and that's an interesting parallel, losing two of the big patriarchs of the different families to give way to the matriarchs who end up filling this void. So, two patriarchs. What are you talk? Which two are you talking about? Magnus and Romulus. Okay. Yep. Um, and then Dido and Atalantia, arguably. So I, I, I guess think Ant- it's Atalantia is an Amon, but. I think it's interesting to make that comparison because the Ash Lord hasn't been an actual real force within the world for three months. Three years. Three, sorry, three years, yes. So nothing actually changes with his death. Like, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't shift. The only shift is... We're referring to the adversary as who she really is rather than who she's pretending to be. She's pretending to be her her father, and she's really Atalantia. But the motivation, the process, everything stays the same. Whereas... Yeah, I guess I'm thinking more about the families themselves and less the... I mean, what, I agree with family? you in the, in the like, terms of the, the society. F- the family for the Ash Lord is literally just him and Andal- Atalantia at this point. Yeah, right. But also and it's like a whole like house. Like it's not. Who else is there? I don't think any of the Furies have children. No, but the houses have sub houses, right? So they're like houses that report up to. It, that still doesn't matter then. Because <laughs> they're reacting to things that quote unquote the Ash Lord does and they are agreeing or disagreeing with them and following through and at this point we learn that atalantia is effectively the ash lord she is not magnus al grimace but she is the ash lord based on how she's been acting going forward so it doesn't actually change what any of the houses have done because they have agreed to go forward with whatever propositions atalantia has set and maybe maybe they change their mind when they learn that the person giving them orders wasn't actually magnus but it shouldn't ideally ideally the uh like Ideally, it should be the same either way because they should have the scruples enough to make decisions based on what they believe in, not who's giving the orders. And I know that that's not necessarily true for everybody, but like that's how it should be, right? Yeah, I I guess again, I'm I'm thinking less about the orders and more about like family hierarchy. You're totally right, though. But like there's that there's is only actually... two members of the of the house, and it's him. Cool. Correct. Who's dead, and Atalantia, who's already been in charge for three years. 
Yes, so the parallel is that we're losing two of the patriarchs, one of whom was already lost. In I don't theory. think we're losing a patriarch here. We are. <laughs> because the patriarch, in, it, like, in, it implies that he's in charge. And he's not. We lost him three years ago. Well, it, it specifically does when you talk about dust to dust versus ashes to ashes. So that's why, like, it makes a lot of sense to have this parallel, which is kind of what I was trying to get to. Like, the okay. the point here is less the, the obviously, they have differing impacts, which is exactly what you brought up, which I think is spot on. Right? Like, Aja has already effectively been wielding her father's title and name, even if it's, you know, in a very Wizard of Atalantia, Oz behind the curtain. Atalantia, sorry. It's been wielding it in a, in a very, like, Wizard of Oz kind of way, right? So far as we know. That seems to be the impression that we get. The... All, all that I'm trying to draw as a comparison is that we are actually, they're physically gone now. Like, regardless of the other impacts on the stories, we see the Ash Lord return to Ash, and we see Romulus go to dust. And both of these rotate around kind of their family phrases, and we see these kind of, these these parallels emerge between the two of them. Even over the course of their courses of their lives, they've also been diametrically as the other reason that I was bringing up the two patriarchs thing is they are diametrically opposed. Like Magnus burned one of the Rim Lord's moons fucking moons with 63 million people on it. So they are definitely and have been for their entirety of their lives. And too many people for a single moon. They deserved it. (laughs) Fuck them. Fuck Rhea. (laughs) Justice for Phobos. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, so I I totally get it though on the on the Atalantia side, you are totally correct in that like your analysis and picking apart what she's doing and the the fact that basically Darrow and what was done here was basically a complete wash and worthless is totally true. Matter of fact, they expended more resources than it was worth and exposed themselves. So we move into chapter 62, Lysander, Iron Gold. We've obviously talked a lot about the definition of kind of the Iron Golds and the way that they lead. Um, and, and kind of Romulus is this true example of of kind of the Iron Golds themselves. I, I think that it's fascinating, of course, that finally the title, the chapter title in this book is really talking about the death of Romulus, most of all, and kind of giving him that true send off as a real Iron Gold. Yeah, I, I I think I think that Romulus's declaration in Iron Gold exists in this world is it's something that tells me that he really cares about his forefathers. And that was something that you could kind of see in his character basically the entire time that he's existed within this series. The fact that he sees Lysander as an Iron Gold and as an adequate representation of of what it meant to be in Iron Gold is probably the most realistic uh, honor that it that it could be, as far as considering yourself an Iron Gold, which Lysander has said he called himself an Iron Gold, and to get get Romulus's basically stamp of approval of that statement is uh really fucking important i think and, and re- a really strong endorsement especially because of who romulus is yeah i i think that i think that you jumped a little bit ahead of where i was but i, I think you're totally totally on it the the part of course that you're you're talking about a little bit here is when um lysander kind of has these has 
Lysander gets pulled aside by Romulus and basically has this conversation about kind of their forefathers together, like you said. Oh, I um, thought that was this conversation. Well, <laughs> that's, I that's basically, I didn't that's read a question. I just asked a question um, okay. that gotcha. wasn't on the, so I totally get it. Uh, but it, it, it's fits. It's, you're totally right. So, you know, it's, it's Lysander's new quest. It's sort of a, their, it becomes this, I can be this iron gold. I should, I should strive to be like Selenius, uh, because Selenius and Akari are these two forces, the scepter and the sword that manage to pull pull it all together you know mm-hmm. so yeah like you said i mean um what do you make of lysander's new quest to to build an army and like form a form a pincher maneuver <laughs> with the rim? uh i'm thinking or, i'm thinking less about that and i'm thinking more I think more about like the sort of internal quest to like become this iron gold and represent to their forefathers. Okay. I can see that. I, it makes me think that Romulus and his like what three or four day influence on Lysander was more important than the decade that Cassius imprinted upon him. Um, which kind of spits in, the memory of who Cassius is. But at the same yeah, time, it, it maintains who Lysander has been for the last, what, three quarters of this book, basically. You're totally right. I mean, it's the whole, like, the kid is dead, the man is now, the man is born, and the kid had all of those beliefs of Cassius, but now the man is forming new new beliefs but but it's also the kid has completely died and has not influenced the man in the slightest yep right which doesn't make sense to me well it's not that he hasn't influenced him it's that he thinks that the goal like cassius's goals were foolish what what has cassius done that has influenced lysander a sense that he of maintains. honor. There, there are a ton of things that maintain with Cassius, okay. for sure. However, he does not believe, he does not agree with Cassius that like Darrow and the Republic is a good thing. Obviously, and that's that was that's been a silent source of disagreement for the two of them anyway. Yeah, that's fair. I don't know though. I don't know if I agree with you, and I, I just need more context, and I like. I, I won't get it in this book because this book is done. So it just, it, it feels to me like Lysander has completely ignored anything that he's learned from Cassius. He never, he never at any point when he's talking about being an iron gold, he never mentions Cassius. He mentions it. He mentions it, his lineage and his grandmother and his upbringing before going on the run with Cassius, but he never mentions any sort of imprint that Cassius has had in his life. Well, because Cassius is at odds with that goal. Yeah. So, like, so that that's my point, but he's not, he's not ignoring it because he's still, when he was in the cell, when Cassius had died, he was still reflected on all of the things that he got from Cassius, like his sense of honor. 
like the idea that he would go back for those people. Like that's that is something that Cassius inspired and gave him. And he does still think about the Vindabona and what he should have done there. What an iron gold would have done there. That's that's in this chapter. But wasn't that also like a comment on that was my downfall ultimately? Like if we hadn't done the that, Cassius was st- would still be alive. Right, if he if he hadn't gone back for Seraphina, that's really kind of the the downfall. Why only save the gold? Becoming so preoccupied with her prevented him from seeing with his own color, prevented him from seeing all of the other lives he could have saved, which is why the Vindabona still haunts him. So mm-hmm. that makes sense. Right. I, I love the quote that we get here between uh, Romulus and Dido that recant recounting again, their entire relationship. I will love you until the sun dies. And when it does, I will love you in the darkness. And that is such a fantastic and emotional line and moment. Um, it really kind of, it evoked for me the uh, the quote from, is it Endgame? No, it's not Endgame. It's Endgame. It is Endgame? Okay. Yes. The, uh, the quote between Tony Stark and his daughter of, I love you 3000, which I never, under, <laughs> like, I never understood why that was something that people latched onto. Um, but it really doesn't have the same ring to it. It really doesn't make any fucking sense. And like, why is that a memorable quote? It doesn't make fucking sense. I don't like it. I hate it to be perfectly frank because people regurgitated it constantly. And, uh, this is a way better quote. This is a way better quote. No, no dispute there. I I think part of the reason for the fascination with the line, I love you 3000 is because it's a very real thing that a kid would say yeah and kids are dumb i mean that can be your opinion it's true kids they don't they're not smart (laughs) i'm not here to debate (laughs) children with you but that's also that's also the point is there's you know they haven't lost that innocence yet and so there is just what do i say i say i love you 3000 because 3000 is the biggest number that i can comprehend stupid kids all right <laughs> what did you make of the trip to Akari's grave and the walk in the dust? Oh dude, I loved that scene. I really loved it. Um I think that uh, one th- one thing I'm really curious about is if they're actually immortalized in the dust like that at 100 or negative 100 degrees Celsius. Um or if they're uh safely picked up by any sort of uh uh spacecraft i guess if they don't make it to the dragon's tomb dragon's tomb right yes dragon's tomb yes um if they don't make it there i'm i'm curious if they're immortalized in the dust there and allowed to be consumed by the wasteland or if they're picked up by any sort of spacecraft and laid to rest somewhere else but i like to think that they're immortalized in their attempt yeah i'm pretty sure there were others if i if i remember correctly like they point out 
Hunched frozen bodies litter the dune around the tomb and cling to the rock formation itself. Ra, who in old age or punishment or shame came here to die, and in death seek to reach their ancestor and erect a humble monument to their own strength. Only Perfect. four have ever made it to the dragon tomb. Yeah, so they're, they are there. They are not rescued by any okay. anything else. That's great. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's such a cool image. Yeah. And I love it. it I was, absolutely love that as an opportunity to immortalize yourself when when sentenced to die essentially it's also like tragically unfortunate that he doesn't make it would we know that four others have made it because this appears to be the most honorable man but then again the walk in the dust isn't necessarily about honor no you know and, like and it's not i don't necessarily think that that's a slight i think it makes him more honorable to try I don't think it matters what? whether or not he makes it, but his his honor and his scruples and what he believed in gave him the opportunity and afforded him the opportunity mm. to do this. And who cares if he makes it? He got the opportunity to try. And no matter what, honestly, the fact that he didn't make it means that more people will see him. Witness me, Akari. Witness me. Mm. Witness me. Um, I totally. Every time I read that, it's Mad Maxi for some reason in my mind. You know, yeah, it is. Yeah, but yeah. It's it's an incredible, incredible moment. With that, we move into chapter sixty-three, Lysander Lux X Tenebris. So we end one chapter with the Raw family motto: uh, d- "Dust to dust," or something like that. Dust for all. In the end. Uh, into and kick off the next with the Loon family motto. And it's fantastic. We've actually talked through a lot of this already. So really, I mean, we've we've got a little bit here, but chaos is the nature of man, order, the dream of gold. We made we were made to shepherd, to unite despite our differences. That is what Romulus said to me in the end, and he is right. And we've talked about this a lot. Um, we have. Like, I, I but, really don't have anything new to say. I because, just want to mention that the quote is yeah. here. <laughs> Dude, it's so good. But it, it also shifted my entire perception of the political hierarchy of this entire book. And not not in my personal beliefs of who's right and who should be taken as the the hero. But the villain of Romulus it has through this quote become my my favorite character and i i don't understand how that happened (laughs) i love it i love it but i don't get it (laughs) you know the the way that it kind of occupies your brain i i totally agree with you i was totally struck by the rim lords and romulus in particular um in this book and Diomedes as well, who who has a similar kind of honor complex. Yeah, but but less. I mean, Diomedes hasn't had the same stru- opportunities. Uh, I I thought you meant Dido for some reason. Oh no no no, Di- yeah. Diomedes. Yeah, yeah, not Dido. Diomedes. Sure. Yes, I agree yeah. with you. I think Diomedes yeah. has the possibility of becoming what his father is. Yes. I don't think he's there yet, but I, I, I think he has given himself the opportunity to get there. And I'm excited to see in in Dark Age whether or not that happens. Okay. 
Yeah, that's exciting. That's an exciting thing to look forward to. Yep. With that Diomedes. And it seems our, our final point, we had kind of discussed this a little bit ahead of time. It seems as though Dido agrees she will send Lysander to the core to find allies to fight against the rising kind of a solar system style pincer attack <laughs> from the rim and the core. So I I can't remember. Did she refer to it as the rising? Um, Or did she I, refer to it as the Republic? Because those are like I, effectively the same thing. But there's a pretty meaningful difference as far as her understanding of what the war is and wh- who she's fighting. She calls it the rising. She does call it the rising. Yep. Then I don't, I, I think she's kind of doomed. I don't. So, okay. Explain, explain more as to why. Because she's mis- like she that. she's underestimating them. Because she she is effectively and explicitly underrepresenting what they've accomplished, and she is seeing them as a fly to be swatted as opposed to an actual enemy, and I I I think that is going to like her her hubris in that effect is going to be her downfall. She she is going okay. to continue to underestimate them because simply this is a prediction i guess this should go in the predictions but because of her uh minusculization of who she's fighting she is going to underestimate them going forward and get caught off guard with an overwhelming force that she wasn't prepared for yeah Absolutely. I um, I think that that's a really interesting read on it. I don't necessarily read it the same, but I totally see where you're coming from. You're, of course, providing the whole context. I see her. And I think that that's actually the way to look at it from the whole context perspective, given like our position as the reader. I feel like she's saying the rising not to to kind of besmirch the whole thing, to kind of invalidate the Republic in her own mind. I do agree with you, though. I think that because of that, she is underselling it. Kind of, yeah. 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 Does that make sense? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So actually, the ideas fit together. It's not the opposite at all, but like, mm-hmm. it's kind of, it's because of her, like you said, hubris that she really doesn't, she doesn't fully understand what she's up against. Then again, Dara didn't have to fight the rim last time. So. Yeah, but she's not the rim. Di- I mean, Dido's rallying the rim, though. That's the. Yeah, but she's rallying it like a core uh, uh I don't know if it? that's I, I know I kinda know what you're getting at, but I don't know if that's true though, because they all kind of agreed as Cassius cut everyone down and over the course of the trial, all of the various lords agreed and sided with her. Yeah. No, that that's true. I just I feel like Romulus embodied what it meant to be part of the rim. Yeah. And Dido is not that in the slightest. And that's true. Even if all of the other rim lords are also not that, and they follow in line with Dido in what she believes and what she is 
pushing towards. It doesn't seem like that's in the spirit of the rim. And I I guess at that point, that changes what the spirit of the rim is because there's a critical mass of people in the rim, leading the rim, not, not falling in the line with that. But it, it'd be... I'd be... Uh, it'd be tough to say that, that Dido is in control of what it means, like, of the rim forces. Because those forces aren't fighting for what it means to be part of the rim. And it's fucking nitpicky, and I don't think it actually matters. But that's that's where my thought, where, where my brain's going, you know? Yeah. I, I'm, I'm having a hard time articulating what I'm thinking. Some might call that alcohol. Well... I'm just kidding. I think uh, I no, think sober. I'd also be ta- like I, I'd also be hard pressed to find what I mean here, in a succinct way. Oh, um, I I understand. I understand your intention at the very least from the perspective of it, this. It wouldn't be really the the rim that we know going to war. It would be the rim going to war for the society, like the rim people, not yeah, the ideology exactly. of the it, rim. That, that's basically opposed. what I'm trying to say. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's totally what you're getting at. So I I totally follow. Um, that's why I said I was joking about the alcohol thing because you well, you were making sense. It's so. true. You're right. <laughs> I just um, I even even now, well specifically now in a state of not sobriety, I can't think of what I would do to articulate what I was trying to say. So well done. You did better than I could. So. Yeah. Good. Sweet. <laughs> I didn't mean to say yeah as though like I'm patting myself on the back for the record. No, you're, you're good. Uh, so ch- we we move into chapter 64, Ephraim Locust Queen. This is really just like a page and a half. So we're going to probably go through it like it's a page and a half or I mean 20 pages because that's what we do. But... <laughs> Uh, there's only really two things to talk about here. The first we kind of discussed in the front end, but the queen to the syndicate taking control of the ship and starting to send them back is just like an, a total, total. I mean, it feels ripped straight out of a science fiction movie. It feels great. And it is a stressful moment and scene considering Ephraim is totally bleeding out. And there's a couple of kids who may or may not know how to fly, fly a plane. Yeah. Ship, if you will. Yeah. Um, Basically, the only thing going through my mind that entire time, the entire chapter here, which you mentioned was like a page and a half, but basically, top to bottom was, fuck! (laughs) (laughs) Like, what the fuck is going on? And uh, that's basically it. Yeah. Yeah. And then worse yet, the chapter only gets crazier. It does. Ephraim Ephraim has a fucking crazy idea, very Ephraim-like of him, and throws a grenade into a pile of grenades to knock it out of the air and put them down in an emergency landing in a crater. And then his fucking perspective fades in the most infuriatingly well 
good cliffhanger ending of any of these endings. Yep. I like the the fucking I knew this was going to be a one-way ticket. Dot dot dot. Are you fucking kidding me, Pierce? Dude. Dude. Yeah. Good stuff though. Yep. I'm just fucking damn it. I just want to know. <laughs> I just want to know, man. Just want to know what happens to Ephraim. Like, ah. I don't care so much about Ephraim. Just tell okay. me whether or not the children are dead. <laughs> it's even. <laughs> no, I love you 3000 from PAX, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Like, who is he going to say that to? I know. I'm just kidding. All that I meant is. I mean, is... <laughs> maybe. Uh, what's her fucking name? Uh, Theodora? I'm being an ass. <laughs> but. Um, it is, but it maybe is Theodora funny. gets the "I love you" three thousand from Pax. Yeah, could be, could be. Uh, where do we go here now? Next, next now here how? Okay, so we go into chapter sixty-five. This is our final chapter of the book. We've made it, PJ. We made it. Chapter sixty-five, Darrow, the rending, and. God damn it, Darrow. His like <laughs> his trust in Virginia, like his not trusting Virginia hollow tone about his own mistakes here is like a dagger pulled from his heart dripping like sanguine blood. It's fucking awful. This is a despicable he he's realized the folly of his errors in the I, grandest of ways. But I think he's right. Oh, of course he's right. He's like, totally it, it's correct. It's cold and it's really upsetting for Severo to hear. But this is like the actual logical approach to things. He understand like he, he makes a point of pointing out that either Pax is dead and he can't do anything about that or Virginia will save them. Mm-hmm. Because like they're four months out. Like, what, what the fuck are they going to do? Yep. So, um, like, he he is in a logical mindset. But that said, that logical mindset is not that of Darrow. It's that of the Reaper. Um, I'd which, actually push back a little bit on that. I think it is actually the mindset of Darrow, regardless. Because yeah. okay. I think Darrow would also I think can, about this. So. I can I can, I can, can concede to that. Um. I I think it, I don't know, it it makes it seem like that he's given up as a father in general. Um, But he's put them in the situation that they're in and he needs to figure out a way to get them all out of it. Because if he just kind of gives up and goes home, Everyone loses. He may be on the moral high ground by giving up and going home and trying to make sure that he finds his son. But everybody loses from his perspective. So I I think he makes the right choice here to not, not rush home on the news that he's been told. 
Yeah. It, I think, I mean, he's definitely making the right choice, right? We, we both agree in that, that this is totally the correct decision. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's just such a tough, tough thing to admit to yourself. But it, it's also the end of a lot of friendships, I think. Yeah. And I, I don't think that makes sense either. But we'll get into that. Let's keep going. Yeah. The... Uh, so we mentioned this earlier as well. And we'd kind of talked through this a little bit when we were talking about Magnus earlier. The the red boy inside me would run home to his family, but I cannot. The Ash Lord was right. Nothing of red remains. I am trapped in my duty, like Lorne, like Magnus himself, like Octavia. And it is a stark realization that he comes to realize that it is he is in fact paralleled. All of these, all these people that he looked up to, fought against for decades. However, whichever way you want to paint it or spin it, he's, Mm -hmm. he is one of them now. Yeah. Yeah. He is, he has become within those ranks, but that that's kind of the trajectory that he's put himself on from the beginning. Um, and it's dependent on the reaper of the reaper of Mars overshadowing Darrow of Lagos. Totally. Yeah. And that's, that is a great, great way to look at it, especially considering we, we talk about the red boy here. Um, yeah. And even, even more so this is him double validating when he was confirming at the beginning that we were just talking about is, you know, the red boy inside of me would run back. Severo would run back, but I am, more the reaper than i am darrow even though i i do still stand by the fact that i think that he starts off this thought that logic is darrow and then kind of recedes to realize that even more so he is the reaper yeah yeah precisely that of course leads to the real fight the real collapse of a friendship here that we've been following for books now darrow will not go and severo cannot believe that he won't chase after their children and Severo makes the decision to go and leave. Darrow holds nothing against him, of course, for the decision, but. Like, I, I I completely understand the frustration and the anger that Severo is showing here. Like, I, I, I have no ill will towards his feelings at this moment. Like, I, I completely get it. And 100%, I understand the anger. But at the same time, he put himself here. He had every opportunity to say no. And to quit and to stay at home. And even his wife understood that you could never keep him back from this. Right. Yeah. That's that's actually a great point is that Mustang knew that there was Victra. no preventing Victra. Oh, Victra. Yeah, sorry. Victra knew that there was no I thought you were talking about Mustang and Darrow, but no, it also I, I'm, obviously I'm fits about with Severo. Yeah. 
yeah, it obviously also fits with Victra. Victra was also very particular about making sure that he comes back alive, and I guess he is, so far as he we is. know. He will. I mean, maybe. <laughs> that was that was why I hit the pause there, because I was like, I guess we don't fully know yet, we do we? We, but. Like, we? we know that they're on their way home, not in a a battle formation. Which, I mean, it would be outlandishly terrifying, like, terrifyingly tragic if they mm-hmm. get shot down on their way home but I don't think that would be at the fault of Darrow at that point Victor wouldn't see it that way but I couldn't blame Darrow for that Absolutely not. Yeah, I I also can't blame Darrow. I I think that the the part of this is is that obviously it's not Darrow's fault that Severo came here. It is entirely Severo's fault. I, I mean, you could you could make the argument that Darrow decided that Severo wouldn't listen to him, so he never fought back against it. There, I mean, maybe I think he wanted Severo to go. Though. Of course, he did. Yeah. But there's there's the scene with Victra while Severo's pack or while Darrow's packing. Yep. Where she's begging him to let him stay. And Correct. he he just instead of saying I'll do what I can, he says, "You know I you know he'd never listen to me in that sense. Like he'd come mm-hmm. either way." Yeah. But he never makes the attempt. Yeah, I think that's definitely curious. Would he would he try to have made you know, especially given what we know? Do I you, I agree with that him, he would have. Like even if he tried, I think Severo would have come. Yep, I I agree. I think I think so for sure. But he didn't try. Correct. So that that question is technically always going to be up in the air until we see otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, of course. So. Apollonius, as well, is let go here. Darrow's promise is partially honored as he lets the man free, but doesn't give up the hostages that he wanted, that Apollonius wanted. It's more than I would have given the man, but... (laughs) I also probably wouldn't have tried to break him out of deep grave. Deep grave. Sorry. Yeah. What, What kind of a psycho would do that? One that thinks he knows everything. Our psycho. That's the kind of psycho. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, it's. I mean, it's a great little moment where they get to kind of recant and there's sort of a genuine moment of, you know, a little bit of honor and Daryl holding up his end of the deal actually feels really good to us, I, to me at the very least. And um, while it doesn't necessarily feel good to him, it does leave them with a decent sense however you can tell that he obviously pissed off apollonius and that this might not actually be the end of of this part of the conflict so Mm -hmm. as the final words of the book ring out we really see what darrow has become a father but not one with a son he is he is rage he is house mars and he is the reaper if if he is a father i would say that he is a father of the republic first and foremost, and he will always choose to be that father. I I really think that the central core thesis of this is him rejecting to be the father of his son and instead choosing to be the father of the Republic. 
So I I agree with you to a point, but it, it may be as the theme of this episode goes, a little bit nitpicky in that I don't think he's the father of the Republic. I think he's the father of the resistance and of the uprising and of the like um, rebellion. And that rebellion is still ongoing, even though the Republic exists. He, he is not in the leadership of the Republic. He, he is what ushered in the existence or the, the potential for the existence of the Republic, but he is the father of the rebellion and of the fight against who used to be. And that fight against who used to be is still ongoing. And that is the rebellion. I I don't think he's the father of the, of the Republic. I think Mustang is the mother of the Republic and Mustang and dancer for that matter. But I I think Um, there's a distinction there. Sure. I, I don't. So he, he was at the very least a part of society leadership. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, I don't feel like that's entirely accurate. I do. He obviously is the father of the rebellion and this book is also dealing with the consequences of rebellion but I don't think that it's a stretch at all to say that he's a father of the Republic because the entire Republic looks up to him. You yeah. Know? Like, I, I, I just, I don't think like it's he, the same thing because he's not, he's not technically a part of the Republic. He ushered in the possibility for them to exist. And, but, but that doesn't mean that he is a part of it. Maybe the grandfather to the Republic. That doesn't make any sense. No. Why would he? Why would he be the grandfather and not the father? Especially be, because considering he, he's, he has no say in how they built themselves. What he had a he it, he gave what? them the opportunity to grow, but he but didn't he also, build them. No, but you don't like. No, I I get it. I I just. I think there is. I I think I think is, there is, is a distinction there. I I think there is a separation. I don't think he. I don't think he has like, any care for how the republic was built and how they operate, other than what they're doing. Um. And I, I think his his obsession still is fighting those who oppose the existence of anything other than the society or anything other than, than what they're, what they're trying to build in the Republic. And like, yes, this is a very subtle difference, but I, I'm going to stand by it because I don't, I don't think he's the Republic. I don't think he's the father of the Republic. And I, I don't think anybody within the Republic other than maybe Mustang, but I think Mustang would be on my side here in saying that he is not what created the Republic. He's what created the room for the Republic to be born. I don't know. Maybe it's too subtle. Maybe it's too nitpicky, but I, I, I think I think there's a difference there. I, di- I think there's a, a distinction. 
I mean, I, I guess the other part of this is that obviously he's pointed to as a as a tyrant by Dancer early on in the book. So I guess I don't see. I mean, the re- OK, here's here's a, a, f- a final point that I will try to bring to this before we before yeah, I wrap up. Totally, my side of this argument. Totally. So uh, when when I think about a rebellion, it births something. Right. So the rebellion birthed the republic. Okay. And it doesn't okay. happen without putting Gera. it that way. Yeah. Yep. You're right. Putting it that way. That I, makes total sense. Yep. I guess like that. And, and all that I'm also trying to say here is that that doesn't mean that he's also not still obviously rebellion first. But what's interesting is that you saying that also points me back to sort of the simplicity of what um, or like the reduction, I think, of what. Of that Dido made to to Lysander about Darrow, about the rising, about it being the rising, not the Republic, mm-hmm. um, is that 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 I think reduces his role a lot. You know, and in my my like mental example with history is a lot of people say like you know there are a ton of founding fathers of the United States, but like Benjamin Franklin's a great example where he literally didn't hold any real official position. But he's still considered a very important founding father, you know, mm-hmm. like I think technically he was the ambassador to somewhere at some point. But yeah. But yeah. either way, minister yeah. of Sweden, but yeah, and France, but not really oh, and postmaster general. OK, well, kind of fine. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not as good of an example as I thought, but, um, you know, uh, there, there are some of those. Um mm. But yeah, so yeah, I mean, what a what a book, man. That's it. Yeah, it's it. What a fucking so, book. Uh, we still have some stuff to talk about yet as we approach the four hour mark. Um, but we've got your <laughs> predictions. We do. Um, so basically, what I did is I wrote down the four main characters that we see. Um, point of views from along with Atalantia and Dancer. And I just wrote what I thought was going to happen in kind of vague terms. Um, maybe we'll, if I think of more things to add, maybe I'll tack that on to the end of next week's episode with Hill Reaper, but I'm not sure. But that's that's where this is all coming from. So we've got yeah. Lyria. Um, I think I mentioned it during the show. I think she'll get r- basically ruthlessly tortured by um, Victra until Electra and Severo return home or until Lyria dies. Again, I don't think she'll be a point of view of the next book. Um... Ephraim, I think he survived the plane crash with the children, but his painting and all the loot that he needlessly, like, snagged is all lost to the wind during the crash. Um, He'll go on to be rescued and then imprisoned. The children are children, so... 
they're basically made of rubber and they'll be fine in the crash. No problemo. Um, their competency in fighting is going to be what keeps them from perishing before they get rescued. Them and Ephraim alike. Lysander, um, the cat's kind of out of the bag as far as who he is goes, his identity. Um, so that's going to br- bring him a little bit of trouble going forward, navigating around the core, but it's also going to make it a whole lot easier to like recruit soldiers and recruit battalions for his, his army. Um, Darrow or I, I actually just wrote the Reaper of Mars instead of Darrow. Um, because there's nothing really left of Darrow at this point. His motivation is his motivation is almost entirely war. And I don't think Mustang is going to go for like rooting for him or hoping for him to come home or really even consider him a part of her or Pax's family anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. Just basically based on what he's put them through. Um, But he'll, he'll harness that rage of the situation and produce an even more violent stand against the rim and whatever army Lysander puts together. So, okay. Atalantia, as far as I can understand, she's basically the jackal, but she's a girl and she's stronger. <laughs> and I, I did that. I did write that with a K strong. She's stronger. And I think, Dancer successfully takes over the Senate and overthrows Virginia. I don't think he takes on the uh, leadership role. The uh, what's it fucking called? Sovereign. Sovereign. I don't think he'll be sovereign, but I think he is going to be kind of a pivotal role within the leadership. So. Sure. Um, any yeah, especially other the way like that word vomits all over the place. Yes, that's true. Any questions <laughs> that you have of me that I could answer as far as predictions go? Otherwise, I'm done with what I've got. No, I think those were really kind of the big ones. That's kind of what I was thinking is, you know, hit the main characters and some other things that you think are going to happen. Um, I guess maybe the only other thing is where do you think the book and different POVs are going to take place? Oh, shit. Um, so the Reapers go into Mercury. Like I, I think we get. So I think we get Darrow, or maybe even just explicitly laid out as the Reaper. I think we get Lysander, and I think we get Virginia, and I think we get Atalantia. I don't think Lyria or Ephraim continue on as points of view in the book. Oh, okay. Where and where are they variously, I guess? Um, I think Lyria, even if she doesn't die within the custody of House Barca, I think she is tortured to the point of 
um, unrecognizable, like a husk of a person. Sure. A la the box. <laughs> yeah. And I think Ephraim is at a point where either he dies, which I, I don't think he does. I think he survives the plane crash, but either he dies or he's at a point where he has nothing else to move towards. And um, he'll live out his life kind of in a boring way. Like there, there's nothing really important that can come out of him. So I think we continue on with Lysander and we continue on with Darrow because he's the main character of the entire series. And then we get Atalantia, who is the main adversary. And it'd be so fucking cool to see her perspective on all of this. Mm-hmm. And um, what did I say for the last one? Uh, Virginia. Virginia. Because I don't think that she is tied to Darrow anymore. And I think there's, sure. a, there's a completely separate thread that can go on from there. All right. Cool. Well, with that, it's been one heck of an episode. I don't know this how the hell really this is going to come out of the long episode. This is the longest we've ever recorded, PJ. Straight it, up. It is. Um, Straight up it is. No question. I don't know what's going to happen. We're going to have to just chop know, shit out. Uh, <laughs> so, next week... <laughs> next week, PJ is dead, and we're not actually finishing the series. Next week, PJ is dead, and we're not going to actually finish the series. Next week, PJ is <laughs> entirely alive, and we are going to have a great conversation with Hill Reaper. And I think all three of them... Are all three of them available? Yes. Yep. Okay. Perfect. Yep. So, again, we mentioned this last week, but we've decided to discontinue the short pours for the time being. So, the following week uh, after that, we will be jumping straight into Dark Age. So, we'll let you know what that is. We aren't going to be doing an intro episode for it either. Um, We're just going to kind of get to it and see, see how that functions just to see if we're maybe setting ourselves up poorly. Or, you know, we're just trying trying something different with the last book here. A little bit different. Exactly. So that's where we'll leave you for the week. Oh, shit. <laughs> Why would you just jump into that like this? Because that's um, how I always do it. Yeah, you do. Uh, thank you, of course, to our producers, as we say every week. Andrew and Tim, they help keep this going. They help keep the lights on. Um, check out all of the links in our show notes that gives you links to our social media and our email and our schedule and our Patreon and a whole bunch of other shit. Previous episodes, our website, blah, 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 blah. So fucking everything. Please check that out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We've got a couple of new things here as well. We want to take a second today to thank our new patrons. Uh, So on the barback tier, we have Mather from Hail Reaper. Thank you so much for for joining uh, and hanging out with us. It's great to to see you. Great to have you around. In the uh, bartender tier, we have Tim Pierson and Xavier, (laughs) which I'm so excited to have a great conversation with both of you going forward. Tim, 
I know I said your last name incorrectly, but I fucking hate you. So (laughs) (laughs) aggressive. Uh, So thanks so much for the support. It really means the world to us. We are stoked, of course, and cannot wait. We will see you all next week with Hail Reaper. I love you, Tim. Have a good night, everybody. (laughs) 